dope smuggling, sex scandals, and the bad boys of pro sports. Who says documentaries have to taste like medicine going down? In 2006, director Billy Corbin tore the roof off the Sundance Film Festival with Cocaine Cowboys. With rapid fire cutting, a rock and roll soundtrack, and characters who seemed like they'd stepped off the pages of an Elmore Leonard novel, he created a brand new genre, the popcorn doc. For the next decade and a half, Billy zigged and zagged through the Miami underworld and beyond, blazing a trail all his own. Somewhere along the way, I started stealing from his playbook in films like The 7-5 and Operation Odessa. His latest movie, produced in collaboration with Adam McKay, is called God Forbid, a very chase-sounding title for a movie about a pool boy who gets embroiled in a torrid sex-drenched debacle with Jerry and Becky Falwell. Without further ado, I give you a raucous conversation with Billy Corbin. Billy, welcome to the show. Uh, so delighted to have you here. I've been a super fan of yours since you exploded the uh, possibilities of what documentary could be, making what I call the popcorn doc with cocaine cowboys, where it's like, okay, they're no longer fucking medicinal. They can be like just totally rock and roll fun. And uh, I- I've just been uh, I've been a real fan ever since. So 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 great to have the chance to connect with you. Well, thank you for inviting me. So before we dive into the new movie, uh, rewind a little bit and kind of tell me your pathway into filmmaking in general and kind of Cocaine Cowboys in particular, because it launched you on this, you know, idiosyncratic and very singular voice and vision of the kind of films you make. So I'm, I'm kind of curious how you how you found your game, how you found your voice. Well, thank you for that very, very complimentary intro and 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 question framing as well. I, I appreciate the ego stroking is going to ease me right into this. I love it. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I started in the the film and television industry. I started as a, as as what you call a child actor um, in Miami, and uh, growing up, there was a lot of that kind of work around here then, and uh, I got a bit part. Uh, Cursing, no less, in the movie Parenthood, uh, starring Steve Martin and Keanu Reeves and Joaquin Phoenix and this ridiculous cast. Like, it was extraordinary. For, and I'm eight, nine right. years old. They shot it mostly in Orlando. It was one of the first films shot in and around Universal Studios, the new Universal Florida. You know, th- the theme park was under construction. And so Ron Howard, himself a recovering child actor, was the director on that film. And, and that was the moment where... I realized that oh this this kind of acting as a as a after school hobby thing felt like the stuff you do as a kid you play soccer you go to dance class you know whatever you do as a kid and it felt like oh if I'm going to continue in this business as a business in a, into adulthood that's the goal the goal is to is to tell everybody what to do not be told what to do <laughs> what to do so so Ron Howard really became my like model or mentor or the the goal and very cool anyway long story even longer when my i met i've my my producing partners alfred spellman and david sipkin i know them david i know since preschool so pre-kindergarten i know dave and alfred i met in ninth grade television production class at highland oaks middle school our tv production teacher identified something in us and made us producing partners like she did she like uh, she wow. made it so, and we have been producing partners ever since. I mean, we were, what, 14, 13, 14 years old. We started our first production company as sophomores in high school shortly thereafter. And eventually, 
um, found our way uh, to this very interesting moment in history where we watched uh, Napster kind of democratize the distribution of audio recordings and and, the, and change the music industry. And we realized, wow, this this technology was only going to get better and faster and soon democratize everything, production, distribution in, in our world. And so Alfred really wanted to do a digital video. Pro- DV was the technology, right, at that moment right. in, the, in the late 90s. And we happened upon this story. So it was like Alfred's mandate of let's work in this technology and then uh, finding out about, and, and my saying actually this technology would be most conducive to nonfiction filmmaking since video, the audience is already accustomed to video in that world, you know, uh, uh, it, and, and even less kind of film literate, uh, our conscious audiences know the difference between film and video, whether they can articulate it you know, or not. They know the difference right. in the war. Right. Whether it's the, conscious yeah. or not, you you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't have the warmth of the emulsion of film or the, so I said, you know what we can do, you know, cause at that point, obviously, you know, since 1978, 79, uh, TV news had been done on video. And so people just grew accustomed to seeing nonfiction reported that way. So I said, let's do a doc. We had never done a doc before. We had never studied documentary filmmaking at that point. And we started hearing around the same time, this story about an exotic dancer who alleged that she she had been sexually assaulted uh, by some fraternity men at the University of Florida and that the entire night's events were captured on videotape. And we decided to just take a leave of absence from college, uh, raise a few dollars and move up to Gainesville and tell that story, which became raw deal, a question of consent. And one year after that moment that we decided to make it, we were premiering at the Sundance Film Festival as the youngest filmmakers at that time in the history of the festival, the first ones from Miami. And it was a little bit, uh, uh, overwhelming because like that turnaround time was you I'm know sure. yeah it was head spinning and um working on Final Cut Pro 1.0 was not a stable piece of software <laughs> and that and that scuzzy voodoo that string of that daisy chain of hard drives yep. that were like that were barely a hundred gigs each and cost like five hundred dollars and just that all that insanity. Um, and survived it, went to Sundance. The doc was on, it was the first doc, or first movie, I think, to sell out all of its screenings in advance. We were on the front page of the New York Post, and we had we did like five, 50 or 60 interviews in five or six days, and the last question of all of them was always the same. It was, now that you've arrived, right, you've, you know, you're like a hit what at Sundance. What are you going to do next? Well, yes, not only what are you going to do next, but are you going to move to New York or L.A.? That was the, <laughs> that was the question. Right. And at that moment is, is when I realized, you know, Los Angeles is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. It's, it's always been a sunny place for shady people. And we, and as obvious as it was to them that we would move to New York or LA, we didn't want to be just three more schmucks peddling our wares in New York or LA. We wanted to be the Miami guys, the Miami storytellers, and, and tap what we felt was an untapped resource of characters and stories in Miami. And that's when we set out to tell the story of our childhood, growing up in Miami in the, in the 1980s, which was originally titled City Made of Snow and later became Cocaine Cowboys. Well, you know, you bring up a couple of really interesting points, which is that, like, your home and your flag is planted in Carl Hyacin territory, in Elmore Leonard country, you know, and, like, there's always that lineage of 
kind of iconography and references and body of work that you kind of either decide to bolt into and conform to and, and carry the genre forward. And it's something that you have done. Like, I love the Miami of it all and the the way that you didn't sort of bow to the pressures and expectations, but instead like embraced who you are and, and, and kind of what those stories were and the, and the freshness of it. Well, as it as obvious as it was to, to people at Sundance that we would go to New York or LA, it was just as obvious to us that we would come back home. First of all, I mean, home is where you go when you're done with other shit. That's why they call it home. So that, that was step one. But step two was the idea that, yes, we knew some of these journalists and writers that were Miami centric or, or, you know, or, or were steeped in our genre of Florida fuckery. But, but there wasn't really many filmmakers that were. There was filmmakers from Miami who made a mark, but not necessarily as Miami right. storytellers. They moved away, right, to New you know. And, but we liked, like, we want to be, oh, like Spike Lee or Martin Scorsese are to New York, or what Barry Levinson or John Waters are to Baltimore, or, you know, now David Simon, you know, and, or Rick Linklater and, and Robert Rodriguez in Austin. Like, we wanted to be associate or M. Night Shyamalan in Philadelphia like we wanted to be those guys like because it's better to be known for something obviously to have a calling card than for nothing at all and that was the purpose of Cocaine Cowboys was to say yeah we did this like true crime Florida doc with Raw Deal but we want to be the Miami guys we wanted a calling card and and also one that was going to establish what we wanted our our style uh to be which you you refer to as popcorn docs we always called pop docs um and because they tended to be both in subject and aesthetic a little more pop culture oriented, a little more pulpy. Um, not that they weren't socially conscious, but but they they they. Uh, my feeling was, as as a screenwriting major, uh, which which that was the best. I mean, I always say the best writing class I ever took, the best cinematography class I ever took, the best directing class I ever took was screenwriting. You know, because you just you needed to know that was what you needed to know. Well, at the, that's the. Yeah, it's the fundaments of storytelling, right? Like it's the architecture of story and it really is irrelevant what the medium is in the sense of whether or not it's nonfiction or whether it's fiction, you have to know how to plant and pay off what proper sort of like arcing and structure is. And it's like, that's the job. Absolutely. I, I, Go ahead. See, I didn't mean to interrupt. The, no, no. The job of a filmmaker is to find a good story and don't fuck it up. I mean, that's the job. I mean, especially in nonfiction, if you're if you're gifted or you're blessed with a good story and good access and good characters and storytellers, it's just there for you to mess up. So you you just have to serve that story and kind of stay out of the way and find the beginning, middle, and end and the, and and the best way to to tell it. Um, and and that's what we I said, you know, not having studied, having been a fan of nonfiction film, but not having studied it and our having to kind of figure it out and make it up as we went along and steal from the best. Um, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't just influenced by documentary filmmakers. Uh, our conversation that we had internally was, well, documentary is not a genre. Nonfiction film is a style of filmmaking that you can tell a story in any genre. I mean, some of the seminal films in every genre are nonfiction films, are documentaries. So you can make a sports film, you can make a love story, you can make a musical, you can make an action movie, you can make a, you know, I mean, a, a, in our case, gangster movies, which is, that's what we said. What is, Cooking Cowboys is not a documentary, it's a gangster movie. So the question wasn't simply like, what would Pennybaker do? You know, it was like, what would Martin Scorsese do? 
with this, you know, and right. and that it and that right. informed the aesthetic. And the first thing I did was said, I don't know that we were the first people to use a dolly in interviews. I know that after we did it, everybody seemed to, <laughs> seemed to be doing it. But like, right. I wanted yep. to get it kinetic. I wanted to get it moving. I wanted to get the the interviews moving. I mean, the average feature I think has about fifteen hundred cuts in it. Cocaine Cowboys has five thousand cuts in it. You know, we fade to white instead of black. You know, the 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 music is by Jan Hammer, who did four years worth of Miami Vice scores. You know, um, and and that's very much that synth drenched driving in Miami at night with the top down, you know, a uh, uh, vibe that that Jan captures so so well. Um, and we just wanted it to just have a kind of a cocaine aesthetic, this MTV Miami in the '80s sort of aesthetic, almost as if you're watching it, yeah, in 2005 or 2006 or 2007. But it felt like it could be this kind of throwback. Uh, piece and interestingly I, I haven't talked about this a lot we were using once again an unstable early version of Final Cut and we were mixing formats and we were mixing frame rates and this shit nearly melted into the carpet in in my apartment where we were cutting it was sure. it was impossible and we, we actually had a classic like like computer rate my homework moment too where we, were tr- we could not output the thing we couldn't we could not liberate the movie from the computer for a film festival uh, work in progress screening at the Miami Film Festival they were livid and we we're like we don't know how to get this movie we don't know how to output it <laughs> it was crashing mid output and we just could not get the movie off of the hard drive and so anyway um, it was so unstable that Cuts weren't, we were, we were editing, and this was more of a frame rate and mixed media kind of issue too, because we alone shot on digital video, Super 8, Super 16, 35, VHS, that's just our stuff, let alone right. the, the, the multi-sourced archive. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was crazy. So, long story even longer, the, the, we were sitting there precision cutting, and I'm a frame fucker, I like, you know, I'm, I'm, I start to micromanage, especially at the end of an edit, but... The, the cuts weren't landing where we wanted them to. They were shifting. Even though we were we were we were precision cutting the frames, it wasn't. It wouldn't on, hold. It right. wouldn't hold. It was sli- like the clips were sliding. The media was sliding within the clips. It was crazy. And at some point, I said, I look. Uh, Chris McQuarrie once said during like an AMA on Twitter, someone said to him, um, asked him the question, uh, "What's the difference between like you know." finishing and delivering like an indie feature versus like a major studio tent pole. And, and Macquarie replied something to the effect of every movie ends the same way with, with, with you saying, fuck it, you know? So, so that's how every, that's how every prior at some point, as as my producing partner Alfred Spellman says in the nonlinear editing world, you don't have to finish, but you have to stop at you know at some point. And so we had to stop. Films are finished; they're abandoned. Right. Right. And I said, you know what? We have to stop. And I I embraced the mistake. You know, uh, uh, I I embraced. You know, it's like cooking. It's there's some alchemy involved. It's like oh, I burn, I burned the the margarine, or I added too much. Uh, you know, uh, uh, garlic, and you realize, oh, that's the secret sauce. You screwed it up, but you actually... So I kind of said, like, listen, there's this weird intensity to Cocaine Cowboys, and, you know, some of it's sort of... In, some of, Very much of it is intentional. Some of it is accidental. It moves at this weird pace where you have to kind of watch it again almost the second you're you're finished with it. Um, and and I like that. I embrace that. And, and, and we adopted some of those mistakes and and happy accidents intentionally in subsequent projects including the most recent so that's good perfect segue let's talk about the new movie you've got some uh fascinating heavy hitter collaborators on this one like and i guess what i'm curious is 
the story of the movie is the story of the movie, the story of making the movie, how this comes into your world, the decision making, like, that's what I want to know. Like, how does this, how does this land on your radar and how do you go about, you know, putting it together? So we, I'm friends and collaborate on a podcast called Because Miami with Dan Lebitard, who is a Miami guy, longtime Miami guy, a fabulous writer and sports journalist. Um, he was our, our we, we always kind of save for a lot of our documentaries the the common the journalist commentator interview. That's like the last interview we'll do. It helps to be the glue mm-hmm. that binds the story together. We have a lot of stitches it together. Yep. Yeah, we have a lot of missing holes and gaps and we need someone to come in we usually have a hit list you know we can go in and just get very specific tight stuff and and start to yeah bind it all all together and so uh dan levitard was our interview on both the the espn 30 for 30s the u part one and part two he was that interview for me um so really very supportive and helpful and um started having me on his his show his radio show his tv show his podcast and um he says you know i got a guy a buddy of mine he's a fan of the show and we become really close who i think you'll really get along with i'm like who he's like adam mckay and i'm like no shit (laughs) like i love adam mckay i think one of the best documentaries of the last 10 or 15 years is the end credits of the other guys which using this this kind of animation describes what a ponzi scheme is and how it works um in this kind of in animated infographic style it's absolutely brilliant um and it was a style that i wanted to emulate but but couldn't figure out how to do on our 30 for 30 uh broke just ran out of time and money um but i really wanted to ape that that style, that animation, but um, steal from the best, right? So we were working on a project called 537 Votes. This was in 2020. It was the 20th anniversary of the absolute Florida fuckery and Miami madness of the 2000 presidential recount in Bush v. Gore and how Florida decided the fate of the country and the world by 537 votes. And not just in Florida, but specifically in Miami-Dade County, um, and South Florida, and so um, he was fascinated. You know, we had this very kind of our kind of irreverent take on it, and um, and thesis and style, and you know, a lot of needle drop, a lot of <laughs> you know, like nonstop, you know, bouncing score. And um, they're like, we they saw the sizzle, they loved it. They said we want to get involved and bring it to HBO, and we did it. I mean, it was a, it was an amazing experience because first of all, you have Adam McKay noting your doc, which is just like it's like having uh, uh, you know, Ernest Hemingway note your your novel, and and then you're we're working with HBO for the first time, the absolute just gold standard, you know, uh, uh, for decades running in nonfiction, um, and and certainly you can credit Netflix with uh, you know, the the kind of 21st century, um, renaissance yeah, and reinvention and, uh, of yeah, yeah. Of, of doc film like, but HBO was the OG in that department. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Uh, so it was it was an honor and a privilege to work with them, and uh, especially on a project that they understood and could really help us shape and make better. I'm very collaborative. I love I love good notes. Bad notes always suck, but I love good notes because as a director. I get credit for all of them. So I'm not too proud to say, yeah, I'm like, if it's a good idea, I'll put, by the way, I get credit. Let's I, do that I get, one. I get blamed for the bad ideas too. I mean, you take the good with the bad, but but I'm not too proud to say like, well, that wasn't my idea, so I'm not gonna do it. I mean, like, if it's a good idea, hell yeah, let's, let's do it. Uh, and you're working with great minds and experienced people, absolutely, like suck up, you know, suck that all up like a sponge, you know? Um, And so 
basically the question came to, as it invariably does, what's next, right? So uh, McKay and Todd Shulman at HyperObject asked us, what's next? And so we said, well, we got an email in June of 2020. The subject read, Giancarlo Granda dash pool boy dash Jerry Falwell Jr. and Donald Trump dash story. And uh, he had us at click. He had us at Giancarlo <laughs> yeah. Granda because we knew exactly who that we didn't need pool boy, although that certainly, uh, uh, you know, was the exclamation point on it. But uh, we knew who Giancarlo Granda was. We had been tracking this 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 scandal as it unfolded eight blocks away from our office in Miami Beach, by the way. Mm-hmm. That was why we were so interested in it and knew who he was. And and it was Giancarlo, the quote unquote pool boy, reaching out to us to see if we'd be interested in doing this story. We mentioned it to to Todd and McKay, and they were like, Oh, hell yes. Um, let's do this. And um and we and that's how we came to 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 work together uh, on on it. And so from that initial email to setting it up at Hulu, like what's your process? Like do you shoot? Do you do you cut a sizzle? Do you would you pitch it all over? What do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, because we had mentioned to McKay and Todd, I don't I don't think we really they really officially came on board until we had a sizzle. So it's a good question. We, you know, we Alfred Spellman, my producing partner, likes to joke that in Florida, when you get released from prison, your first call is to your mother and your second call is to rack and tours to us to make a documentary about you. Um, and there's there's a lot a lot of truth in that sarcasm. Um, and in this case, Giancarlo was not uh, uh, to his credit going to or coming out of prison, um, but did reach out to us to tell to tell his story. And it was in the it was the height of the pandemic and so we were not like sort of taking a lot of meetings but he wanted to meet in person so it took us a couple months to get that together in the interim he had actually gone public through a Reuters story an absolute bombshell at the end of August 2020 started to do this media blitz make the rounds on Good Morning America CNN NBC etc and then we wind up meeting in Miami in November of 2020 um, and then it would take another several months to to get going. And I think it was the spring of 2021 when we shot uh, several days worth of interviews um, with uh, with Giancarlo. And from that one interview, call it the hero interview or master interview, we we cut a sizzle um, using you know just that that interview and an archive. And uh, that's what we I believe we originally brought to Hyperobject, who said. This is amazing. Let's let's take this out, and then we started doing pitches, um, and and we landed at Hulu, which which in, incredibly has kind of become the home for Pop Docs in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it sure has. They've kind of leapfrogged everybody, and and they do these kind of noisy, sexy, um, you know, sticky kinds of yeah, yeah, provocative sort of. So so it so they were very very excited about it from the very beginning, like from the sizzle. Um, and in fact, the, the the trailer they put together a year later, which is I think is just a, they did a fabulous job with it, is highly evocative of the original uh, of the original sizzle that we had submitted to them uh, a year a year earlier. But they were immediately in- interested in it and and very aggressive about it too, which is nice. Nice to be loved, right? It's nice. It's nice to feel like people are excited about it from from the jump, and they were and and incredibly supportive uh, of us through it as well. And how much are you having to sort of like husband or hoard that? relationship with Giancarlo 
like during the media blitz and whatever else, it's like, okay, is this going to get away from us? Is like, like, you know, talk about that because the source tending is a huge thing in docs. You know, like I, I, to this day, I'm still like carrying the like nutty people that I've, you know, sort of made films about over the years. Talk about that kind of relationship with him and how you manage those relationships in general. I don't have to tell you, a, a, you know, a 20 plus year career in nonfiction filmmaking, you build this family. You, you do. You build like these people are forever a part of your life to some extent. They're all a part of your life uh, forever and um, for better and worse. <laughs> right. I mean, right. To, Amen. Amen. <laughs> to be perfectly candid. Um, and and it's and it's hard. I, some people are a little media savvy and they and they kind of, you know, uh, uh, are sophisticated and and kind of play it like it's a game. And that's cool. Um, that can arguably be sometimes easier to deal with and sometimes more difficult to deal with. Then we're dealing with a lot of, of lay people, of people who this is their first time on camera or, or their third time on camera, or they're just not accustomed to talking about the most embarrassing or controversial moments and times of their moments lives. Moments of their lives. Yep. Yeah. I mean, because usually we, we come in like when, when bad shit or after bad shit has happened to people. And so... You know, we become, you know, friend, therapist, uh, you know, a confidant, and yeah. and and it becomes a very, the relationships become very complicated sometimes. Um, and uh, and that and that certainly was the case here. You know, Giancarlo came to us before, like you said, you know, he, he had he then had to go on this media blitz. Uh, but I thought he handled himself beautifully. I mean, with no no media training, just sort of like going on camera to talk about these incredibly embarrassing and personal uh, episodes from his life. Um, he was just very candid and I thought very credible. And honestly, for us, a lot of what we do is synthesis journalism. We stand on the shoulders of people who have covered these stories contemporaneously before us. Some case they did so decades earlier, in this case, just a, you know, a few years earlier, but um, for us, I think it's actually helpful to have some of this material previously published, both for legal reasons and for mm -hmm. B-roll, you know, and archive purposes, right? He kind of generated, we watched him generate in real time what would, you know, at the moment we didn't know we were going to do the doc for sure or not, but, you know, it, it felt like, okay, well, here is, when we start putting this together, here's the B-roll, right? Here's Giancarlo you know, talking about these issues um, in, in the press, uh, which, again, helpful for us, I think, as, as storytellers, uh, as, filmmake, as documentary filmmakers, but also helpful for the attorneys when it comes to looking for corroboration or prior publication when they're trying to sign off on the doc on the back end. You know, so, so we didn't look at it as like this was our exclusive or this was getting away from us or uh, we, we saw it as kind of almost it became supporting documentation. In a yep, way. Yep. Absolutely. So, yep. so um. We're cool with all that. <laughs> so, so talk about like, you know, I think one of the things that's so signature about what you do and I, and I recognize it from my like life and work is the importance of performance in interview. That is to say, like people are telling their story in a way, and it has to seem as if it's sort of being told for the first time. It has to seem authentic. It has to seem complex. And yet it is a performance of self. Like how do you, how much do you talk ahead of time? How much do you sort of game out what it is? How much do you save it for the moment when cameras are there? What's your process? It's hard because you want to keep some powder dry. You want it to feel fresh. And you know that once you have the conversation, even 
offline or off camera or off the record with somebody, the moment they're on camera, they invariably go to like telling you the story from rote. It feels it feels like reruns. They'll even say, you know, as we talked about before, like, you know, we talked and I'm like, no, we didn't talk about it before. Like, you know, we're, we're trying to keep this fresh for for the audience. So, yeah, it's it's hard. And, and I'll um, it helps to have producing partners. So sometimes what will happen is Alfred will do more of, you know, as much as I have to gain a relationship and trust with someone, Alfred may do some of those pre-interview type of conversations with them. So at least when they're sitting down with me on camera, I'm a new person, arguably, and they're keeping it, you know, we're keeping it a little bit more fresh. Sometimes I'll just be in conversations with them and I'll be like, tranquilo, tranquilo, like calm down, relax, save it, save it, you know, and I'll just, I'll just say, just stop talking, let's save it for, you know, for when we talk on camera, whether that's tomorrow, weeks from now, months from now, or whatever, you know, I'll just say like, you know, let's save, save, keep the powder dry is, you know, is what we'll say, um, but, uh, but then it just becomes about, and, and to a certain extent, um, it's why I call, um, you know, I, I think that 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 Sasha Baron Cohen is one of the great documentary filmmakers of our time, um, because despite what you might want to call that, it's a mockumentary. It's this. It's that. What he does through lying is he gets truth from other people, and Beautifully his put. yeah, his ability to play a character and make other people feel comfortable sharing unpopular or unpleasant views on camera is an extraordinary work of nonfiction filmmaking, in my opinion. He just, he, you know, because if if you're talking to someone who you believe is Bonami, shares your racism, your misogyny, your Islamophobia, your homophobia, you're like, oh, I'm in good company here. I'm, you know, I'm, right. we're, all, I'm we're all part of I'm the club. I'm safe to be yeah. who I am. Right, he, fly, he flies a flag and you're like, oh, I'm on that team and I, right, I'm safe here. And so I, what he's getting is truth. He's getting a true. He's getting truth from people who otherwise would be acting or would be faking it on camera because the camera's there. That's the thing: is the, the presence of the camera doesn't necessarily capture truth. It may force artifice and and you know and and people to get more performative and to actually conceal the truth about themselves or their story because they're afraid of people knowing that. What what is the the line that Jerry Falwell Jr. says in the documentary? In the documentary, he's quoting his father, Jerry Falwell Sr. He says, "Don't be mad when people tell lies about." you just be glad they don't know the truth so it's yeah, so an amazing line amazing yeah. line and, and it's like the whole movie is about that you know so it was fantastic and he repeat we had like him saying that on camera no less than like six seven eight times and i really wanted to use like all of them but we just didn't we didn't have the time just pick the best one but anyway it's god it's such a good question um because part of what you have to do as a filmmaker, and it's not an act of deception, a la Sasha Baron Cohen. So you're not lying to get truth, but you may have to play deaf or dumb to kind of like say, "What was that?" Sure. And what? And you know, uh, 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 you know, you, you have to because you have to sometimes draw people out uh, because uh, for, I mean, for several reasons. Number All one, the time. They, All the time, really. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I remember we were interviewing. We first met one of the hitmen. Who didn't wind up giving us an interview on Co on Coking Cowboys? We met him in prison several times, and he was very cold and standoffish. He would kind of give us monosyllabic responses or even grunts in response to questions. And so this was kind of an I discovered this accidentally. Like I said, we kind of had to make this up as we went along. But I remember Alfred sort of like walking him through. It's like a particular crime scene, and he was like, uh, uh. he was literally grunting or no, yes, no. And I'm like, this is not. 
helpful. We weren't on camera, but we needed him to, you know, to see if he would be worthwhile to even interview on camera. And so I said something to him, and I, I, don't, I, I don't remember doing this on purpose. I think I just screwed up. I said something like, oh, and is that when you shot the, the, the mother in the living room with the 9 millimeter?" And he goes, no. I was in the bedroom with the Mac 11. Uh, Rivy was in the in the living room with the with with the the wife with the and he go he sets the entire because he has to set me straight because I'm an idiot right yeah. like what like I'm supposed to be the documentarian and I don't know well like like dude like get your shit together right like he's telling me and so I realized like oh if I just ask a stupid question I might get you know <laughs> get like the best this is, well, answer it's a technique right yeah because you're you're eliciting the like build the world for me I didn't live it you lived it so like what are the trigger points to get that moment yeah so, I'm an idiot talk, talk to me about- like I'm five yeah Right, like, 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 paint it for me. So, how many cameras do you shoot? How long, when you shoot those anchor interviews, do you shoot them all at once? Like, is it done in tranches? And then how are you managing kind of original photography on the front end before you go into the edit? Yeah, so we interviewed Giancarlo on this project with with approximately too many cameras. I just, I get nervous, you know? <laughs> it doesn't matter how, I, I have to remember, like, generationally, I straddle the line between an analog and a digital world. So the idea that we work our asses off for this and none of this footage exists, <laughs> like, in any tactile, there's right. no... There's no tapes. There's no. It's like oh, it's zeros and ones on a on a plastic box over there. It's like oh god, <laughs> it's like the worst feeling. It's like so. And then the idea that like how to you know how to effectively duplicate this because having two hard drives with the same shit sitting next to each other on a shelf is not a safe way. <laughs> that is not duplicate. Right. The building right. burns down. Do it all burns. Yeah, the shelf falls over. You're it all. Yeah. Right. It all. Fu- so you need shit. So we won't trap. Like we do. Like. We won't travel with hard like when we shoot on the road. Uh, we'll get on a plane with a hard drive, leave a hard drive behind with the line producer or the UPS, and they'll then ship it when we land safe. Like we we get very you know the protocols are pretty intense because it's just because just like I'm I'm nervous about it. Uh, you know um it does not this stuff is not forever necessarily. You know so um anyway we uh, this so and I get the same way with the cameras. Like I want to feel like especially where. We knew on this project that this was going to be that. I mean, the pool boy was going to be Giancarlo was going to be like the anchor interview. Like this was the one we were going to keep coming back to. I think. I think even in the final cut, as much ground as I as I feel we cover of the macro story, the micro story in Giancarlo's interview is about approximately plus or minus a few minutes, like forty minutes of the total of the total runtime. Right. That's ex- that's an that's extraordinary movie. Yep. Yeah, that's an extraordinary percentage. And and it was the first interview, it was the longest interview, and we started to do the string out, the radio cut, almost entirely from his uh, pr- perspective, just the initial, you know, the spine, as you put it. Yeah. So um, so we, I shot it with a lot of cameras. Again, most of which I didn't, most of the angles I didn't wind up using, but I wanted to feel like we had it covered. You know, we were doing it in this very, like, Miami, deliberately kind of tropical backdrop, you know, with these windows and, like, sort of, so light is coming and going and, and uh, conditions are constantly changing while we're always tweaking for that, you know, over the course of a, of a, of a long day. You still want to make sure the coverage is going, you know, if the light shifts in a certain way, you're going to have it covered. Um, yep. And so we did. We had a lot of cameras. Um, only wound up using about, 
predominantly three angles and a fourth angle we used for like one or two shots. Uh, one or an, an additional one or two cameras we didn't use, I think, at all uh, anywhere in in the in the final cut. Um, so we overshot it. There's no doubt about it. But like to me, that's like it's it's like oh, why do I need insurance? I'm not going to have that's an accident. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah. It's like that's the yep. whole thing. Yep. So yep. we have it. I can I can go to sleep, you know, knowing that we that all the work that went into it, we had it. We did three days with him originally, and then we saved a day four, which in the budget and in the schedule, which wound up being a year later, ten or eleven months later. So so, f- okay. So from that anchor interview, right? What is your process? Are you sort of stringing out, stringing it out in, you know, the Abbott or in Final Cut or whatever? Or, and then like, okay, what are the other supplemental interviews or how much of a game plan do you have from day one? Here's the sort of mission critical interviews and, and how many of those are booked at the time that you're shooting with him? Virtually none uh, were booked while we were shooting with him. Uh, we, had a, we had a list, a wish list, a pretty significant wish list. Most of which we knew we weren't going, <laughs> we weren't going to get. Some of which were maybes, and and a tiny handful of which were we, we thought we would get. Some of which we were right about. Some of which we were wrong about. Um, this uh, his sister Lilia, I think is like who's terrific. Yeah, she, that's I, a great. That was a great, great addition. Like perspective wise, it was wonderful to have her. She's my voice. I feel in the doc. Like yeah, I I don't. I the moment I met her which was while we were shooting Giancarlo's interview, I was like, well, we can't make this documentary without her. Like, like she's as indispensable as he is. She was there at the beginning and the end, like, firsthand. She corroborates significant, like, important pieces of the story. Um, she obviously knows him his entire life. She's seven years older. They obviously have an unusual relationship in no small part because of the age gap where he confides in her almost as a, like a, a best friend and mentor rather than, you know, a sister. So I, and, and, and she just like, he, he's a little aloof. He has kind of a, a guarded sort of, you know, way about him. He talks about his kind of early social awkwardness. Um, but she just seemed like, the voice of reason and the voice of the audience and well, the voice a, of she's me. A, she's, an, she's, an, she's an audience surrogate, right? So it's like the, the, the reactions that you would expect that the audience is having as watching it, she's able to voice and articulate exactly what's the sort of going off in your mind. We only do, for, we do first person productions. You know, there's no voice of God. We don't get to write this. So she, she is, that, like you said, that voice going like, what the hell were you thinking? What the hell is the matter with you? This is ridiculous. Like everything, yeah, the audience, and I'm thinking, the audience is thinking while this is happening. And I'm an older brother too. I have a brother who's two and a half years younger than me. So like just, just in real life, that's the character, you know, I rela- the relationship I relate to most, right? Like if you'd only listened to me, you would never be in this trouble, you know? But of, but of course, you're not going to listen to me, you know. Yeah, so I I love that. Um, she was a quick yes and then a very quick no, hmm, and it would take about eight months for her to come around to doing wow. the interview. So and, you're cutting all that time without her voice and sort of being like, okay, what am I going to do if I don't get it? Pulling your hair out, freaking out. Yeah, I don't like to go back to that place, but thank you for taking me there. Uh, was, those are those are some yeah, those are some dark days. Because the, the mo- listen, she says to me, "No, I don't want to go on." She's like, "You know what? I wanted to support my brother, and that's why I said yes." And she's like, "I trust you, and I like your work, but 
I don't want to be on camera talking about my little brother's sex life. Like, we're just normal people. Like, I go to work every day, nine to five. Like, I don't like. I don't want to be. She's not looking to be on a reality show. She's not. You know, like she's just not looking to be internet famous. She's like, I just don't. And and I didn't argue with her. I didn't hard sell her. I was like, I can't like. I hear no a lot more often than I hear yes. So I, I just, that's a I perfectly legitimate, yeah. yeah, it's a perfectly legitimate position. I'm not going to try to, to to tell you that you're not acting in your own best interest. Like your your position makes total sense to me. And I kind of let it let it go and and cried in, in the editing room for about eight months. Um, And in the meantime, we're, we are, you know, we, we knew we were going to have Mark Ebner, who was the commentator character, who we were saving for the end, who was co-writing a book with Giancarlo that just got published a few weeks ago by HarperCollins called uh, Off the Deep End. Um, so we knew he was going to be that, you know, he was going to bat clean up, you know, Boys. for us. Yep. Um, yep. And then yep. uh, Tom Arnold, of all people, <laughs> who, who, who injected himself and, you know, inter- inserted himself into this story. Um, and so he we had to interview him, which is wild uh, uh, in and of itself. And, um, and, uh, then we knew we wanted to get these commentators, these theologians, uh, Randall Balmer, the the evangelical pastor, uh, Dustin Wall, who was uh, a, a a graduate of Liberty University, part of a, an alumni reform group, uh, who was a very prominent voice against the leadership of Jerry Falwell Jr., um, really looking to preserve the reputation uh, and of their institution and the, and the preserve the value of their diploma as well. Who obviously right. they they yep. the li- liberty yep. liberty liberty student body and alumni and and faculty they became uh, uh, victims and collateral damage of this whole scandal, you know. And so these folks were out in the forefront well before this, years before this scandal broke, tr- attempting to uh, uh, change their their campus community and their leadership for the better. So that you know, th- again, people we thought that you know, we had been in touch with, we knew we could, you know, were, had agreed to do interviews. And in the meantime, Lilia is just you know kind of hanging out there, and um, and she finally came around in early twenty two, early this year. And and said, did you have I will to show her a cut, or or what was the what was the like what what was the pivot? There was some press. The the the, the Falwells had come forward and started telling the third or fourth version of this of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that they had told. Um, and she was a little resentful. They were talking about incidents and and episodes that she was present for, and so she felt like I'm the only person she who... wanted to call bullshit. Yeah. yeah, she she's like I'm the only person who was there who has my brother's back. My parents don't want to have anything to do with this. We blurred their faces, you know, in in the photos in the doc and and she's like I have and she just finally said I have to do this. And I'm like if that is your conclusion, obviously I support <laughs> I support that decision. Um I said but you're right. Like just as she was right before that she doesn't want to do this. Right. She was right that she was the only person who could do this. And so begrudgingly, uh, and not begrudgingly because I dragged her kicking and screaming or or convinced her. I did not convince I failed. <laughs> Let's make it perfectly right. clear. Right. I failed to convince her. She ultimately came around and convinced herself. So listen, it's sheer dumb luck that we had enough runway, right, to where this mm-hmm. could all, that, that emotionally she could go on the journey that she needed to go to. This is the thing about docs now, dude, is like, you know, we used to tell stories that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now there's like this rush to be like, like, 
you know, the real time seven, turn and burn. Right. Yeah. We need seven Firefest documentaries. Like that's like like there's you need distance from this shit. Like you need people to you have do. You do. some yeah, some objectivity and to be able to see the forest for the trees. You need like people always say like, when are you gonna do like a big three doc about Miami Heat? And I'm like, can LeBron retire? Like let them like two of them have retired like let the and like I would argue that he should retire and then wait ten years. You know, like like I just you just I don't know, like, but it's it's again, it's a good problem to have in that we there's a lot of work, right, for for doc filmmakers now. But it's a little frustrating in that, like, you don't get that that distance and that objectivity that I think is important to. Because listen, I've made documentaries now that if I interviewed those same people ten years from now, it would be a totally different experience, totally different not a different film. story, yep. but a different experience and different wisdom and different hindsight and and I would argue more compelling, but I'm I'm not the buyer, so I, I don't I don't decide what, right. what right. gets no, on there it, or it, not. It's, it's, this is what, it, it's all the stuff that we're contending with, you know, as filmmakers. It's like, okay, if you rush to do it, it becomes kind of the first draft of history. If you wait, you have that kind of distance. If you wait too long, then it's, you know, lifeless and inert or whatever. So let me right. ask other, a other, couple other more people will of, Other people will have done it and then you can't answer in the pitch the why now right and then you're like dead yeah, in the water exactly 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 um so talk about your process of original photography both the sort of you know aerial stuff that's in there plus the like you know recreation scenes when do you shoot that in the process how late do you wait and kind of like what is that process so that you have a t enough time you know you know the story but you know it's also going in surgically how do you how do you manage all that it's reckless, but the later the better, obviously, because you don't want to overshoot it. And, you know, we can, and on the reenactments, we can't afford to overshoot it. You know, I mean, cut, cutting any of that, those are expensive. For us, a big day on a dock set is eight or nine people. That's a big, that's a big set for us. On, on, on a reenactment day, like on Screwball, we had a friggin' tent. We were feeding over a hundred people. Uh, one on our biggest day on the reenactment. So those are big, those are pricey days for us, you know? So we need to, we need to be, selected we need to really be well into the cut to know exactly what we think we're going to need and particularly with well with screwball and with god forbid where we were doing the drunk history-esque lip-syncing uh you know the actors in the reenactments were lip-syncing the dialogue from the from the for the doc so you need that dialogue edit locked and loaded you know and and, and yeah yeah and and that has to be how it's going to be otherwise your 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 reenactment footage is is useless so we and, and that includes the the drone days too you know we don't like to overshoot anything and so um i there was some gorgeous miami drone work in the last bad boys movie bad boys for life um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I, and i got a guy who was on that not the, not the guy but a guy a guy on that team <laughs> who who uh who did some beautiful drone work for us um very little of which came from his library most of it came was was commissioned was original because we needed yep. yeah specific buildings and spe and specific uh, uh uh skylines and specific locations and it, um, and i like to with the drone my mandate always i don't always get this but my mandate always is i want to do with a drone a shot you cannot do with any other technology so mm -hmm. I don't want it to mm -hmm. just look like an aerial or look like a chopper shot or look like a, a jib shot or look like a crane shot. Like, I want it to look like like this technology is badass. I mean, it's really cool. So yeah. I be wanna, what it is. Be what it is. Yeah. Yep. I want to do angles and moves with it that you could only do with this technology. Again, don't always get that. Sometimes you just need the aerial, but like uh, on the cheap and there's no, you know, <laughs> better. You're not going to you're not going to get a chopper with a gyro anymore, you know, like so. um so we do this, but um, we had a couple shots. Get this. So, uh, 
there's a very important scene in the first act that takes place at a Days Inn hotel. And that hotel is no longer a Days Inn. It was a Days Inn in 2012 hmm. when they went there, but it's no longer a Days Inn. So we had these very cool drone shots of coming down Collins Avenue and making their way at the Days Inn, coming off the Atlantic Ocean, making their way to the Days Inn. Uh, and of course, it says Lexington Hotel on the, right. on the side right. of it. Right. They're very different font, very different sign. And so we had to go into to our, our effects people, our graphics people, and and put the Days In sign, a glo- big glowing sun, sunny Days In sign on the side of the building. So so there was a lot of those sort of I, what I hope are invisible effects, you know, that we had to kind of sneak in as well. But very late in the game because you don't want to pay effect for effects that you're not going to use in the in the final cut because then you're just wasting money. So and, and we can't afford to do that. So um, yeah, we just wait and and try to script those those reenactments and, and shot list those those drone shots as late in the process uh, as possible. How long do you cut for? You cut for a year? Forever, it feels like. Uh, right. <laughs> um, you know, in our company, the three partners, um, Alfred handles the business, I handle the creative, and Dave is in post forever. Like, because that is where the, that, the life of a documentary That's where the movie's made. Is, is yep. almost entirely in, but like you can start, you can shoot for 13 days, for 13 weeks, for 13 months. You are editing forever from from the first day of shooting. You're in post production, and it does. And you can shoot for three days, and you're in post from day from day one of production, basically. You know, and so yeah, and yep. so you need someone that you can trust who is going to shepherd whether whether he's the hands on or she's the hands on editor of the particular project. You need someone in house who is going to be the godfather uh, who. Who knows where all the friggin' hard drives are? Who knows where the, you know, what's on what server and what, you know, like someone who just knows their shit. So uh, we don't, we can't keep track. We're doing seven projects now at the same time. Gone are the indie film days where we're like working on one project. Yeah, every project takes a year, two years, three years in the case of Kings of Miami 12. But you're not just working on that one project for that amount of time. You're on seven things. And again, good problems. I am, believe me, I'm not complaining. The day I thought that, that doc filmmaking was going to be a business. I mean, 10 years ago, I would have, I mean, last year. Yeah, it seemed impossible. It seemed impossible. Dude, last year, I turned down three fully financed documentaries to direct that were offered to me. If you would have told me five years ago or two years, three years ago, or even two, that, that, that you'd, I'd be turning, I'm like, no fucking. First of all, I prescribe to the Sydney Lamette School of say yes to everybody for everything because you never know when these opportunities are going to dry up. You know when you're going to dry be up. Irrelevant. Yep. Yeah, like and and of course every project you learn something new on and it's you know it's an experience. And but I I got to the point where just like I I couldn't. I just like you know I just the queue was full. How do you not lose your mind? Because I'm sort of contending with the same thing. Like, how do you not lose your mind with the sort of multiple projects and multiple stages? And like, how do you give things the sort of precise attention that they need so that you don't feel spread too thin and that they do still feel handmade films? Are you saying I haven't lost my mind? Is that I, I'll no, take? No, uh, yeah, good question. Good, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll take. You'll take the compliment. Uh, you'll yeah, take the compliment. Okay. Um, okay. I haven't lost my mind. Um, no. I, <laughs> yes, listen, that's and, and a win. And it's and 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 getting back to your early point about about like subject relations, you know, and 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 that gets really hard, you know, because you're working with so many people, and they are all real. These are not actors under contract. These are real people who are opening up to you and confiding to you about these you know intimate or potentially embarrassing parts of of their lives and and you want 
them to feel like they have your undivided attention, you know, all the way through the release of a project. But that's just not, it, it, that's unfortunately not the reality anymore. We're working on so many different projects and we, and then all of them are at different stages. Some of them are only at the sizzle stage. So we're like, we're a year or more away from the point where this thing is going to be coming out and we're going to be out there promoting it and supporting it where it like, like, and right now, like, promoting this doc has been a full-time job you know while 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 we're you know for weeks and weeks and weeks while we're trying to get our our new stuff you know <laughs> up and rolling and so you basically and, in short you have no advice for me how not to lose your mind because you have no idea no i mean it's it's yeah i mean you're juggling a bowling ball a a, a sword a, a a sword a, a, a double-sided lightsaber a a, a porcupine and a stick of dynamite a, a, yeah i mean like and you're just like you know no i i, I mean and and it's hard and but 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 all those things are living, breathing things. Actually, they're not inanimate objects. They're real people, and they deserve your respect and they deserve your attention. Um, and and arguably, you've 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 sold them on that. You know, you've sold them on your undivided attention and your respect. And 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 it and it just it's uh, I don't I don't have advice, and and I'm not, and and I don't think I've been doing it very well. I'm doing it because you have to, you have no choice. Like you're you know it's it's just happening, so you have to do it. And I don't think I'm I'm necessarily. Uh, 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 doing it very well. I think what what ultimately happens is all's well that ends well. So if you if you've given someone your word, you just you know you have to you have to stick, the, stick landing, the landing, right? Yeah, you just got to yep. get there yep. eventually, and then everybody goes. You know what? This was a pain in the ass. You might have been absent for a you know for a minute or or an asshole for a, for a while, but like but we're but the film all dope. came together. Yeah, yeah it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I have one last question for you, and I'll let you go. The um, Talk to me about the title sequence, because I thought the title sequence was so elegant and beautiful in this movie. And I'm curious, like, tell me tell me how you made that and sort of what went into it. I can't tell you what a pleasure this is. You know, I, I've been talking so much about the, the, the politics of it, the religiosity of it, the scandal of it, certainly the sex uh, and, and, and salaciousness of it. And I very rarely get to talk about the filmmaking. This is such a this is such a joy uh, for me. And your questions are so good. I wish we could talk all all damn day about about this. Um, <laughs> you know, because uh, uh, you know we, we we think about this so much and we talk about this so you know internally. Yep. And it's then, all consuming. Yeah, it's all consuming. Yeah, and yeah. then you and come then it out gets and lost then... in the narrative. And by the way, again, again, great problem because people are so into the story that they want to talk about the story. Believe you me, I'm not complaining the least bit about this but you know we think of ourselves as filmmakers and uh, uh first and and but if if we succeed at storytelling then you're right everybody wants to talk about the the you know the story the conflict you're the ambassadors and, of story yeah you're ambassadors of story not necessarily like well, how the hell did you do it and i think the best you know? documentaries are the beginning of a conversation right they they they, they mm -hmm. you know they they get people more interested in going down that rabbit hole right going on the going in the youtube and and finding more shit and reading articles and reading the books and being like oh my god i'm so interested in cuz like you make a doc like this which is you know uh, uh, you know uh, todd shulman calls it um um uh, Trojan horse filmmaking, where you tempt the audience with the candy and then you slide in the vegetables and the broccoli, right? And and so you know, yes, it's this story of this, you know, cuckold threesome with a pool boy and uh, the the first fat, you know, the 
president and first lady of the largest Christian university in the in in the world. And yes, it's about hypocrisy and, and abuse of power and holier than now uh, uh, misconduct. But then it's also this story the story of a of a fifty year multi generational evangelical dynasty with outsized uh, influence on presidential politics. And and you know and so we wanted to be able to accomplish all all of those things uh, at once. Um, but I want to come back. I want to come back to your uh, to your question because I've been talking a lot about that. Give me the that, title that sequence. Give stuff. me the title sequence. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I knew we we had a we were going to do a cold open. We often do. I knew I wanted to do a title sequence, which sometimes you you may or may not do. But in the streaming world, you basically do it, and then people can you know have the option to skip it. Um, but I like them to be very kind of integrated to where you feel like even in a series like uh, Cooking Cowboys Kings of Miami, you still feel like you want to like you want to watch it in every episode because it becomes the overture that really sets the tone and the mood musically and aesthetically for the for the piece. And so. Here, it's just, I mean, obviously, the pool was going to dictate the aesthetic. I also like when we do motion graphics, like, to... To, so it looks like it's customized for the piece to where like you if you're switching through the channels which you're obviously not doing in this case this is you know on, on Hulu but like if you were to see it you'd know it was part of this world so we use these caustics this caustic lighting effect like the you know like light and sun bouncing off a pool and creating those cool like hectic lightning sort of uh, uh, white white reflective lines um, and so I knew we, I wanted to do something Listen, it's a it's a Maurice Spinder. It's a James Bond, you know, opening credit sequence. So we spent an entire night in a pool <laughs> underwater mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, with a fabulous underwater uh, 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 DP. She was amazing, um, uh, Alexa, and we. We just we had this all storyboarded and designed, and we just we had these wonderful actors who you know and models who held their breath underwater, and we just kind of did this dance. We did the we, the opening drone where. You know, I, I we knew we knew the cold open was going to be at the Fountain Blue Pool, so already that pool aesthetic and that you know that the, those caustic uh, uh, bounce reflecting lines were going to be all over the place in the reenactments, and then um, and of course there's water in the background of Giancarlo's uh, master interview, and then we have this sort of splash, and the first thing you see for the Hulu presents is a man who from overhead who is uh, dove into a pool, and instead of putting his hands all the way. All the way back, he puts them to his sides and kind of appears almost like a cross through the water, and then it becomes this, uh, uh, I, I, you know, pas de trois underwater with 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 a younger man and a and a, a woman, and then this older man kind of circling, and it's just like you know, I, I mean, it's pretty on the nose. Uh, and then of course we have Natural Blues by Moby, you know, singing about about god and you know and and knowing my my strife and my problems you know and and yeah and it just again just very james bondian kind of a kind of a thing it was epic and beautiful and so and so um carefully constructed i, I just like i felt i was like ah yes a be- you know a beautiful title sequence at the beginning of a movie it felt uh it felt throwback in a in a in a great badass way like i miss those amazing title sequences yeah, I, I listen. I, like I said, we're, we're, we we think of ourselves as filmmakers first. So you know, I always say, and and there's a truth in this joke that like I make documentaries so that I can score them because I love like that part of the process. Like I have a very Spike Lee. Like that's probably my greatest influence on music. Certainly Scorsese to some extent as well. But like we do wall to wall music. I know it annoys some people, but like that's just what we do. It's like to me, these are the best of our our docs are musicals. And they and they just you know they're basically they're they're operas or symphonies and the music just like 
you know, takes you where you need to go. It gives you the subtext. It gives you the motifs that you need to understand some of the relationships. And so uh, on Kings of Miami, I said to my composer, I said, listen, I want people to be lying, you know, laying in, sitting up in bed, watching this doc and their feet at the end of the bed. I want it tapping the entire six hours just the foot tapping to like keep that tempo to keep that pace and yeah i mean i i just and i think people like that for, it's a throwback for us and for young people they don't know from I mean, they know main on end you know you don't even have opening credit sequences anyway except in james bond movies i i you know um and so i don't know i i just think and again for me it was a tone setter and the, and the song speaks to what the the doc's about and i just like yeah i i hope people aren't skipping it i hope they're watching it and letting it and letting it help set the mood yeah, I love it. I, I, I could have been like, title sequence, let it go on for another five minutes. I'm loving this. So uh, I, it's uh, it's so great to to finally meet you. I've been a fan for a long time, and I look forward to sitting down in Miami at some point and getting a taco together. Are you kidding? Come on down. We'll meet at the pool at the Fountain Blue. Done. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Billy. It's a real pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Anytime. A big thank you to director Billy Corbin and his producing partner, Alfred Spellman, for creating one wild-ass body of work. And thank you for Adam McKay for joining the carnival. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. This show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe.